0: Let's go, Let's be working out here, no, no in that center no, no holes out there. It was a team of rebels in an outlaw league. The Minnesota Fighting Saints were charter members of the World Hockey Association, an organization that began play in 1972 as an in-your-face challenge to the pro hockey establishment. Based in downtown St. Paul, the Saints were a unique collection of characters, colorful and sometimes cartoonish, with a blend of talent and toughness, became an entertaining alternative to the Crosstown Minnesota North Stars. Their team was really bad. It was slow and it was not very good at that time. So they had a terrible time in the NHL. Well, the Saints were rollicking, freewheeling, totally entertaining. They might win, they might lose, and you might not care. For parts of five seasons, the Fighting Saints were the Capital City's professional hockey team, the pride of St. Paul. And they won more than they lost. But their story isn't just a tale of victories and defeats. It's a real life saga of sweat and blood, of camaraderie and red ink, and a sporting chapter that can't be forgotten. It's just mayhem on the ice! If everybody, I think, uh, that has anything to do with hockey or likes hockey, has seen the Slapshot movie, well, we've lived that. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon.
1: Hey now, how's it going, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. It is Good Seat Still Available. It is the Curious Little Podcast that is devoted to what used to be in the realm of professional sports. Thanks for coming by and uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. We appreciate you doing so this week. Fun and frivolity. We're back into the World Hockey Association. This week's guest Tells us all about the fascinating story of the Minnesota Fighting Saints. His name is Dan Wenisota. Is that his real name? I'll never tell. But the Minnesota Fighting Saints, almost uh, if you could encapsulate the entire history of the World Hockey Association, which I know is a, a challenging thing to do in its own right. But if you wanted to pick a, a really good, not completely, but a, a really decent, representative club. And it really was actually two clubs. We'll get into our conversation. The Minnesota Fighting Saints were probably emblematic of this crazy league for a whole host of reasons. They were a hell of a lot of fun to watch. They were in St. Paul at the time when the still-fledgling Minnesota North Stars were holding ground in Min- uh, in uh, Minneapolis proper, and then uh, in the suburbs of Bloomington. Um, they were slow. They weren't such a great team, as you heard in that clip there, from an old clip from uh, a documentary from the old FSN, Fox Sports Network North. Uh, I don't know when it ran. We tried diligently to find out, but we couldn't. But uh, that was the setup uh, for that documentary. It's online. It's on YouTube. The uh, Fighting Saints were quite the alternative. And uh, around the time that the WHA uh, was uh, coming online, nineteen seventy-two, the debut season, the Fighting Saints were there uh, as part of that uh, debut uh, in the St. Paul Auditorium in nineteen seventy-two, and then the St. Paul Civic Center from seventy-three to seventy-seven. And as our guest this week, Dan Winnesota, will tell us um, just uh, uh, just the thrill ride of all kinds of uh, shenanigans. Uh, through its first iteration, the Fighting Saints, from 72 through, I would say, the midpoint of the 75-76 season or so, when they flat out ran out of gas, uh, which was not uncommon in WHA times, for sure. And then, incredibly, uh, a return of a brand new franchise, they, they being the former Cleveland Crusaders Of the WHA, which bolted out of town in '76, when, as we know from our episode number 225 with uh, our our great guest Gary Webster, the Cleveland Barons uh, were coming to town uh, as a relocated NHL franchise, that being the uh, California Golden Seals. Um, So we uh, the 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 reemergence, if you will of the Minnesota Fighting Saints, um, they took on, this is sort of a a mini retcon, retroactive continuity situation, but it was really a second franchise. But adopting the name of the original team that had left in the midpoint of the prior season uh, in 1976, and itself the second franchise, the former Cleveland WHA franchise, only lasting a half season in and of itself. Uh, different color schemes, but the same logos and Fighting Saints names and and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's just the, the the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so much to talk about uh, about this uh, crazy team and a half known as the Minnesota Fighting Saints and and we're digging in as we try to chip away and, and, and comprehensively uh, in this week uh, in the WHA so many stories from that If you knew the mo- uh, know the movie slapshot, this is an episode for you. If you remember the brawl at the ball between the Whalers and the Minnesota Fighting Saints from, uh, when was that, April 11th, 1975? There's no video of it, but the uh, audio is classic for you hockey fans out there. It was the Hartford Whalers, uh, or the New England Whalers, I forget what they were known as at that point, in Hartford. Uh, is the only sort of, I think, uh, existing um, uh, 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 audio or video of that. This is an episode for you. If you remember the Cleveland Barons or the Cleveland Crusaders or uh, have uh, any interest in Minnesota hockey generally, this is the episode for you. It's our conversation with Dan Winnesota. He, the author of the brand new book, came out just a couple of weeks ago, called A Slapshot in Time, The Wild But True History of the Minnesota Fighting Saints. He's here to talk to us all about them and it coming right up right after this promotional message. Buckle up for safety. It's a doozy of a memory for sure. How about two great sponsors this week to celebrate the memory of the Minnesota Fighting Saints? Let's start first with OldSchoolShirts.com. Our pal P.F. Wilson and friends in Cincinnati has three, that's OldSchoolShirts.com, of course. The three great shirts, three, count them, uh, that uh, commemorate. Uh, the two and a half, the one and a half versions, if you will, of the Minnesota Fighting Saints. There are two great shirts celebrating that first incarnation: uh, a gray shirt with the sort of blue and yellow Fighting Saints logo, one of the best logos ever in forgotten sports history, for sure. And then a, uh, a sister shirt that has uh, this gorgeous yellow S with the word Saints on it. Um, that's the uh, first iteration of the team, and the second iteration of the team, the 1976 version. Uh, is uh, the same Minnesota Saints, uh, Finding Saints sort of baby like logo, angel like logo, uh, but in their new color scheme of that year, yellow and red. Uh, check them out all at uh, oldschoolshirts.com. And that's not just, the, there, there's tons of WHA shirts uh, writ large there for you and uh, other leagues and teams and sports and cities and memories. It's just, it's a collection that keeps on growing. And of course, we've got a promo code for you there it's good seats at OldSchoolShirts.com. Good Seats is the promo code 10% off all of your purchases. And then once you're done there, head on over to our other pals at RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. Not only will you find a really great Fighting Saints shirt, actually two different versions of those, of the first iteration. There's a yellow shirt with the the blue uh, highlights and vice versa, a blue shirt with the yellow highlights. Again, commemorating that first year's uh, team's color scheme. But there's also the opportunity to get a gorgeous custom me, put your number on it, your name on it, whatever you want, Fighting Saints jersey. And yes, two different versions available for you at royalretros.com. There's the blue with the yellow trim and that original color scheme and logo. Or you can get it in red with the yellow and white trim, which commemorates that half year of the second version. Fantastic stuff. If you're a Minnesota hockey fan, you grew up in Minnesota, you just want to amaze and delight your friends, why don't you head on over to royalretros.com and get yourself one or maybe both of these Fighting Saints jerseys. And now as I move my cursor around, I believe you can actually get um, those in white and uh, yellow as well. So they're four colors. Uh, The the main colors of these Finding Saints is home and away jerseys, one of which is that red and gold version of the 1976 half year version. All of them available for you in tons of different sizes and whatever you want to put. You want to put a Captain C on there. You want to put an alternate Captain A on there. You want to put your name on there, your number or leave it blank for God's sakes. They're all custom made and they're highest quality for you at. What is it? Well, come on. Well, you know, it's RoyalRetros.com. And again, promo code for you there is just plain old SEATS. SEATS, the promo code there for you, 10% off all of your purchases at RoyalRetros.com. Thank you both, RoyalRetros.com and OldSchoolShirts.com. And thank you for trying them out. We appreciate it. I know you're going to love them, whatever you get from them. And I know you're going to love this conversation. Coming up. Here it is. Dan, Minnesota. Let's talk about those fighting saints. Here we go. Please, as always,
2: enjoy. This whole bit for me started with the Believe Land documentary. Um, If you've ever seen the Believe Land documentary, um, ESPN 30, um, they talk, you know, they chronicle Cleveland's all their heartbreaking moments. And, you know, they have the, the shot the catch, the, the, the drive, the, you know, and they have them like labeled, you know, and, and each one of those events, like, for example, they say the trade, well, the trade was the, the uh, Cleveland losing Rocky Calavito. Well, Minnesota also has a famous trade, the Herschel Walker trade. And then they talk about the drive where uh, the, uh, Ernest Biner fumbles on the goal line, you know, the fumble um, that same day. Darren Nelson fumbled on the goal line for the Vikings in the NFC championship. So I'm watching this documentary and every one of these events, I'm like, oh yeah, I got one better. Right. And then to me, the, the, the icing on the cake was, um, they talk about how the evil owner, Ted Stepien of the Cleveland Cavaliers had traded away all their draft picks and these hero owners, came in to save the Cavaliers and that's the gun brothers uh, uh, George and Gordon gun. And the picture they use in the film is the guns in front of a North stars flag. Those are the two owners that tried to move my North stars to San Jose. And I'm like, how dare you? So that was like the thing that really set me off. So I was like, I need to write a rebuttal to this director, this uh, um, Andy Billman. I need to write a letter to him. (laughs) So I started crafting this thing about all my arguments. Uh, why minnesota is more tortured than cleveland fans are and it turned into this little mini mockumentary i titled wennesota because believe land whennesota when's it going to be our turn and we had this little uh um uh, showing of it in the garage and invited family over and had popcorn and i had little you know uh, cups made you know a little uh uh, souvenir cups and everything and just kind of in you know went through all minnesota's worst sports moments in this film and that turned into um the calendar of calamity because a friend of mine encouraged me to start writing again so I, I started creating this calendar of calamity that caught the attention of our local sports station here uh K-Fan. Uh, in Minneapolis, Saint Paul, and they started using the, the Daily ca- Calendar, Calamity Calendar, which is why the people always email me and say, "Hey, why don't you say anything positive about the Twins?" Um, and then one day, I got an offer to do a book about the calendar, and that turned in, that turned into the first book, which was a uh, history of heartbreak. But that's what that's kind of what started it all.
1: So, uh, if, uh, obvious to say, you, you're you're a Minnesota guy, I guess,
2: and a native at that, right? Yep, yep. Born and raised. I have a few years I spent in Fargo for college, um, but uh, yeah. And
1: I'm I'm guessing you would consider yourself then a long suffering Minnesota sports fan. I mean, like how far <laughs> back does this go? I you know at the uh, 80s, yeah. I mean, day, as but... far
2: as I can remember, I just I remember that growing up and the Twins were just terrible in the early '80s, and my parents talking about the Vikings being the first team to lose four Super Bowls. So yeah, we've got a lot of uh, uh, just um, in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In our genes, just this, this, okay. You know, here's the, here's a perfect example. I just mentioned, you know, Fargo, I go, I went to NDSU and they, I got to NDSU. And I was like, whoa, the football team here wins. I've, I didn't, I didn't know what to do with that. Right. It was like, oh my God. Right. Um, like I've been to some NDSU football games where the team gets down in the last minute, nobody leaves in Minnesota. Everybody leaves because we know it's over, you know, and, and NDSU, the fans know we're going to come back and they do. Here we go. We go, ah, This is over there. Or you get that feeling that you're like, Oh my God, here it comes. We're going to blow this. And it's like, it's, it's a physical feeling. And it's, it's like I said, it's, it's in our genes, I think. And, and why is that? Is it, is it
1: because say, uh, the, the pro sports thing really took a fairly long time to kind of, uh, I guess, circle around the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and and domicile, you know, all the major sports and that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously it was always at the top of the list in the 60s in baseball for expansion and, you know, hockey took forever to expand. And, you know, Minnesota had to wait until what, 67 of the great expansion, the NHL waking up.
2: Yeah, uh, 67 was NHL. Yep.
1: Yeah, I mean, so but most of the certainly the timberwolves didn't come till a long time, you know, a long time even after that. Is it because I, what is it? Is it an inferiority complex? We're, we're not good enough or we're, we're a we're a major metropolitan area, but people don't give us enough crap. What, what why do you think that sort of is?
2: Well, I think it was. it's. I mean, it's a little bit of both. I think, first of all, it's just experience. It's happened so many times. I mean you know how if you're dating a girl and she keeps cheating on you and says, says she's not going to do it again I mean how often do you keep you believe it right i mean i mean very rarely does it happen for, like that Minneapolis miracle we all thought that was over right i mean how does that happen you know so i mean and even the next week after that that Stefan Diggs touchdown i mean i'm like oh my god you know like death is coming looking for us we escaped it like i could not focus on that that uh, the the philadelphia nfc championship game i just i was so anxious and so worked up because we had escaped death the the, the few weeks before, or the week before um but yeah i mean i think minnesota has like an, a little bit of a, you know uh, one of my favorite radio hosts calls it uh, uh flyover country you know uh, we're we're not as important as the other coasts or or the second city kind of mentality i mean not that we're not but um we uh, we have that kind of uh one of us thing. And, and, uh, we're very proud of who we are in Minnesota and like, to all, Oh, they're from Minnesota. They're one of us, you know? And, but, uh, when it comes to sports, we, we, we're definitely fly over country, I think. All right. Well then tell
1: me how in particular the fighting saints, both versions, by the way, and we'll get into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the world hockey association sort of, uh, hits your radar as something to delve into and, and, get more schooled on and, or to uh, a story to unearth, right? Cause I think, you know, the Minnesota North stars, we've had a couple of conversations about them, including people like Howard Baldwin, and we're part of the ownership mm-hmm. group and, right. and the, sort of the, the menage a trois, if you will, between the the, 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 the penguins and the, the, the San Jose expansion thing and the guns and Minnesota and, and then moving to Dallas and, and all those kinds of shenanigans and stuff. There's a fascinating sort of web of that, but yes. this is a team that I think, Admits, I think anybody who's a hockey fan would probably say, Oh, yeah, I remember the North Star, Dino Cicero. Yeah, I, mean, I remember all that, sure. But then when you go deeper into this fighting saints thing, you'll get a, a completely quizzical look. And that might even be among people who even know what the WHA was. So what's your story?
2: Well, so uh during the pandemic, we were all looking for, you know, media to consume and watch and during all the lockdowns and somebody turned me on to this California golden seals documentary. And I, obviously you can tell I'm a, I'm a, I love documentaries. That's one of my favorite things to uh, watch, but are you uh,
1: referring to the Mark Gretschmill uh, film? I think so. Yeah. It was on, yeah. it was on Apple iTunes or whatever. Yes, I, it was. And just yeah. so, just so you know, a little historical note, Mark Gretschmill was our very first guest way back oh, when, that's five plus awesome. years ago. So he was the excuse and the reason and, and the way we got going. So we are apologizing. Well, it's a brilliant documentary. Person. It's brilliant.
2: brilliant. And, and as you know, the, the California seals came into the league at the same year as the North stars did when they expanded. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of watching this and you know, I, I aspire to be maybe a, a sports documentarian someday. So my little amateur films that I have on YouTube um, um, I, I kind of thought, what there's no, why is there no North stars documentary? I mean, it's a really great story and, just I just thought you know what why don't I do that you know I'm sitting here in a lockdown in a pandemic and why don't I do that so I started using my kind of normal uh research and and things I mean I don't have access to a lot of video or interviews or anything like that but I started to create just kind of my own little amateur north stars documentary it's called the north star state um and I kind of divided the it up into four parts um the first part is uh, it's called um a star is born and it's about the origins of the franchise and the building and constructing of Met Center. And, um, you know, and, and kind of interestingly, part of the fighting saints story here is when the North stars, um, when they got their franchise, they, they kind of had two factions in their kind of organizational group. They had a Minneapolis group and a St. Paul group. And this for Minnesotans has always been kind of a, 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 a little argument about, you know, well Minneapolis being the first city and St. Paul kind of being kind of overlooked a little bit. And um, at first they wanted to, they were looking for an arena. They needed to have an arena that was 13 some thousand seats and Minnesota didn't have one of those. So they would either have to build one or they would have to um, expand a current one. And the, the, one of the goals was, or one of the first plans was they were going to um, um, expand the St. Paul auditorium. Well, right before the Board of Governors meeting, they realized that that would have to be approved by a public vote and that wouldn't be known for another few months. And well, after this meeting with the governors, Board of Governors, so they decided to go with the plans to build a new stadium, Met, Met Center at the Bloomington site next to the baseball uh, stadium. And that kind of ticked off the St. Paul faction um, and they decided to kind of, well, we're going to go present our own plan to the NHL Board of Governors. And this was like a few days before the NHL um, um, Board of Governors meeting. And they kind of realized divided, they stood less of a chance to get a franchise. So they, they kind of made, kissed and made up and said, all right, we'll go in there with the plans to, you know, uh, have the, the St. Paul auditorium as our site. And when they went into the meeting with the Board of Governors, the Board of Governors weren't having it. They were bored with it. And they're like, listen, we need a new stadium. We, wanna, we want to have you guys in a new arena. Um, so they took a recess, went out and talked it over and came back in with the plans to get the uh, the uh, Met Center to go with, with those plans in Bloomington instead of St. Paul. And um, the NHL awarded the North Stars the franchise. And so St. Paul kind of got closed over a little bit there. Well, you know, three months into the North Star season, St. Paul decided to uh, approve plans for an arena, an 18,000 seat facility. Uh, which would become the civic center. And anyways, that's all in the first part of that film. Um, And so the second part of the film was called St. Seals and Barons because you can't tell the story of the Minnesota North stars in the seventies without addressing the WHA and the competition for players and, and the competition for fans here in Minnesota, where they had two different teams and two different choices. Um, And that's kind of where I got into this. And as I'm going through this history Um, I'm just reading all these wild and crazy stories and, and these newspaper articles. And I'm just like, why, you know, and you're, I, I, you know, I Google things and you're looking, you know, there's plenty of North stars books out there. There's no books about the fighting saints. It's kind of lost history. And I'm like, these guys need their own story. So that's kind of where this book, I, I I wasn't sure at first if I was going to do it as like its own little mini documentary, but it kind of turned into a book.
1: So this is this in your mind this is more a a a missing plank in the floorboard of uh Minnesota at least professional hockey but maybe professional sports to fill in sort of the, those gaps that that Minnesota sports fans and 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 maybe even others by tangent right uh need to know about right and you're mentioning one of those right so one of our <laughs> one of our uh, uh most popular episodes thus far in our five years happened just about i don't want to say about t- uh, six months ago um was talking about the um uh the cleveland barons right and, mm-hmm. and i think you're sort of hinting i know we're yep. getting a little ahead of the story there but right without understanding that cleveland barons story right um
2: because that's uh, the seal story, and exactly and, well, no. seal
1: story, and then obviously well, the the second version of this team. So, okay, so I, I sort of get the um, uh, the sort of the setup here. So, and Gary Webster, by the way, is the person we had that uh, conversation with. So, our listeners can stop what they're doing right now and search up that episode, and then come back to this one when you're ready. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, all right, so give me a sense then as to how you approach this story. Right, it's it's the early 1970s. Uh, we had the late, great Dennis Murphy on this show. Uh, mm. He passed away last year, uh, talking about uh, his recollections about the WHA. I've had a lot of people who've you know, had some experiences there. Uh, and, and all of them seem to kind of circle around uh, sort of a, a thread of uh, sell franchises first, uh, figure out the hockey thing and everything else later. <laughs> uh, is that yeah. the same? Is that true? Is that sort of that, that belief set sort of hold for the fighting saints? Um, I think so. How did I think you approach th- the story to begin with
2: well i th- i th- I think so. you know, I asked uh, i I spoke with the PR director for the Fighting Saints Mike Lamy and just kind of like I said what was what was the Fighting Saints legacy? He said one word, chaos. I mean, just they were kind of learning as they went and kind of, like you said, it just uh um you know, get the franchises first and and everything else will fall into place. um i i just I just approached it from a timeline kind of perspective, like from you know, the beginning to the end. Um, and, you know, kind of just chronicled it that way um, and just told the stories al- along the way, season by season and, and, and the playoffs, and then kind of like, you know, an epilogue at the end, like, here's what happened to everybody. So pretty, pretty linear, I guess, is the way it was set up. Um, but so, okay. So,
1: so walk me through then how you sort of reconstruct this story and get in into it, even the source material, I mean, you, you, it seems like you had somebody who was still around who had actual firsthand knowledge. And it's, those are always the most golden, shall we say, of, uh, of sources, right. But, um, what did you think you knew about this team going in and, and how did you start chipping away at it? What, what was the process that, that, you know, you got going to do so? Was it microfiche? Was it uh, video? Was it just the recollections of, of the form, this former press person or, or what?
2: Well, for me, I, my little bit that I do on Twitter is all about newspaper articles. And um, so I just bury my face in old newspaper articles and, and you know kind of write about the stories that happened. And, and I kind of, I mean, I was negative one in 1972. So um, I don't remember, I didn't, I mean, I knew they existed. So to me, this was all brand new reading these stories. Um, I didn't talk to the people about the stories until afterwards. So like I pretty much had the whole story from all reading all the newspaper articles um, and and kind of knew the timeline before I went to, you know, I, I also spoke with uh, um, uh, Lefty Curran, who was the first person to sign in the history of the league. And and uh, so when, when I went to talk with these people, I pretty much knew the stories. Um, I mean, they gave me a few things I didn't kind of know, but. More or less, it was it was them kind of just recant confirming my story. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so I do have this right, I do have this right. And, and listening to them to them tell it in their own words was uh, was quite a bit of fun as well.
1: And Lefty uh, wrote the forward to the book too, so that uh, that's saying something too. Because if he's the first guy in the league and he's uh, forwarding your book, it's obviously it has some meaning for him too. But uh, so 1972, right when the WHA uh, launches in earnest. Uh, the Fighting Saints are indeed one of those original launch teams. And uh, to me, it's kind of a curious selection. Uh, not in that Minnesota and the Minnesota uh, and the state, of course, and the region, and the two cities, of course, too. Hockey Hotbed, right? Had, had you know, for some time and, uh, be, I guess, you know, uh, uh, overdue in 1967 to be uh, awarded a, an actual professional franchise by the uh, by the uh, late to expand NHL. But I guess we're talking about only five years in, right? Um, now, all of a sudden, there's a competing team in a, shall we say, competing or at least sister city. Um, and all of a sudden you go from one, you know, within the span of five years, you're going from zero professional hockey franchises to two. Yeah, um, Is that curious in that time? Or is it just like, uh, of course, Minnesota should have an expansion or a startup WHA franchise.
2: Well, I think at first, and I don't know this for a fact, but I think at first the WHA seemed like some of the franchises were in cities, like they target, like they had the Philadelphia team and they had the New York team, and they they seemed to be trying to target cities where they could draw away from the already established NHL. Whereas in the end, you know, of when it all started to collapse, it seems like they didn't want those team, like they you you probably know this. They let the Cleveland Crusaders. Uh, or they bailed out the cleveland crusaders with a loan while they let the fighting saints die well that's because they wanted um to when they were going to merge they didn't want to have cities that had teams where nhl teams already existed but at first i think maybe they, they wanted that i mean i i guess i don't know that for a fact but uh it seems like a lot of the franchises were in, in cities that already had. Some,
0: yeah.
1: So. There's always a curious thing as we, and basically that not just unique to to hockey and all the challenger leagues and stuff, right. Sort of, it, it, this, it still plays out in things like the XFL uh, version 3.0 and 2.0 and 1.0 uh, certainly the USFL 2.0 and all these others. I mean, it's like, do you, um, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a balance, right? Because right. at the same time, you want to be sort of taken seriously, you need to have some exposure in some of the major metropolitan areas, which usually means having direct or indirect competition against the the man, so to speak, yet with a, a fledgling new franchise, right? And then right. try to battle it out. Or you try to find an untilled market that like MLS, right? Going to Nashville and going to Charlotte and going to Orlando, right? These are logical places because they only have maybe only one pro team or two tops, right? Austin, Um So, but it's that balance, right? And the weird thing, and I think I'm pretty certain that the WHA experienced this from day one or day minus one
2: is it's hard to do both at the same time. Well, and you know, too, it probably, it probably came down to money to be, I was just kind of sitting here thinking about it while you were were saying that, but I'm going to be honest. I think it probably came down to, all right, who's going to give us enough money to have a franchise. So I think that might've played a little major part in it as well.
1: All right. So who was the sucker? I mean, the uh, person who was really interested (laughs) in uh, ponying up the dough for, uh, you know, in all the nicest sense manners of the word, the hustling, a bunch of uh, of merry men uh, uh, behind the WHA Gary Davidson and of course uh, our pal Dennis Murphy Um, who's stepping up and saying I want in in Minnesota? well I
2: think the guy's name was Lewis Kaplan they 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 had owned like the St. Paul um, Saints minor league uh, team in the 50s and 60s and they were the guys that were kind of interested right away and the group expanded I mean I can't uh, remember I'm trying to scroll through my manuscript now to get to all the names here, but oh,
1: it's not a quiz. It's you know, but it,
2: no, it's all right. I want to make sure I have the right information for you too. So,
1: well, it's, it's, as you do that though, it, it's a, uh, it's a reminder that a lot of, um, and not just in WHA, certainly we saw it in the WFL and a lot of these sort of uh, Gary Davidson, um, Dennis Murphy uh, uh, concoctions um, there might've been a lead investor uh, but yeah. more often than not, uh, there even if there was that, it tended to be kind of a a, a group, a large yeah. group of small investors, and uh, and oftentimes the uh, decision making structure uh, suffered because of that sort of spread of of ownership stakes.
2: Yeah, it was it was Lewis Kaplan. I was right. Um, I think he had because WHA the first year they named all their trophies after all the. Um, their board of governors, their first ones. And the Kaplan Trophy was, I think, for the rookie of the year. And he was, he was kind of the lead investor. I mean, there was a couple other guys, um, um, Egan and Lean and, and um, John Nassif, Bob Caproni. They, 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 the group kind of grew as the C, uh, before it even started. So it started out with just three of them and, and then expanded. So um, give me a
1: sense of, of what was leading up. To their debut, were were, was there fan interest? Was uh, the St. Paul location uh, enough of a differentiator? Uh, Was there a fear that maybe uh, there was plenty to go around just with the one franchise that was only five years old in the NHL, or there was unsatiated appetite for for more?
2: Well, a couple things in in for Minnesota, um, you know, at that time in the NHL, there was you know, probably like 20 U S born players in the entire league. That first fighting saints team had 13, not only American born players, but Minnesotans. So that kind of appealed to, um, uh, local fans. Um, and, um, the fighting saints too, were, you know, they were a little bit, uh, I don't want to say it the North stars. Some people consider the North stars date night, whereas <laughs> the fighting saints were a little bit more, um, um, People Who wanted to see hockey? They, they didn't want to be seen, they wanted to see hockey, was the quote that uh, uh somebody had said. Um, but yeah, that and and that first season, too, they started they, the Civic Center wasn't even finished, so they started in that um St. Paul Auditorium, which only held about 8,000 um, um fans. And um, I think the first night they they got like 6,000, but after that, it was it started to drop off a little bit. So they were concerned about, there were definite concerns about attendance um, and they knew they would lose money that first season. Um, but, uh, but they, uh, they lost more than they, they thought. They should, they how, how did they come to market? I mean, like uh, what was the, so
1: uh, focusing on local players seems like it's an advantage or a differentiation. How do you, I mean, is it St. Paul is different and better and stay in the city and it's, you know, not a, you don't have to drive out to the, to the burbs and, and this, you know, the, this, the vast farmland where these two stadiums now are, are, you know, see the, uh, it was a cheaper tickets. I mean, what was the, how do they sort of go to market and, and uh, differentiate themselves from the five-year-old franchise across the way?
2: Oh, they did all kinds of like, uh, like stick night and, and puck night and they had all kinds of promotions and their tickets were a little bit cheaper. Um, they, they, like I said, they tried to market the uh, the, the the Minnesota-born players. Um, Glenn Sonmore, um, it, you know, was the former Gopher coach, and he was he was known to be a little bit uh, uh, um, I don't want to say it. He was more physical with his uh, style of play in the teams he coached. So they marketed it that way as well. Um, they marketed the new arena coming. Um, yeah, I mean that's.
1: You have on the cover, uh, a picture of, uh, why don't you describe for our audience, the, the cover, um, it, it it it's a, it's truly a picture that says a thousand words. I mean, one of which is the dental work of said player or two, <laughs> why perhaps that player looks the way he does. And then number three, sort of like, you know, a little bit of the aura of perhaps how the team sort of approached their type of play, um, a little bit of a sense of, of, of all those things.
2: Well, that's I was kind of going that way with the Glenn Sonmore thing. Sonmore was a little bit looser with the, uh, the requirements on how players had to appear. <laughs> um, I think at one point he had a quote about, you know, if, if your hair gets so long that you're tripping over it, well, then you need to get it cut, you know? <laughs> um, so he was, he, he wasn't as concerned as those things. Whereas the North stars had rules about being shaved and having, uh, uh you know nice haircuts and things like that and that kind of led to the fighting saints attitude but yeah that photo that photo is mike walton um and when we were going through the uh cover photos and things we wanted to do i, I had put it out there as like a fan poll like you know what do you think of these covers i mean everybody wanted to see the carlson brothers uh, uh on the cover um the you know the the, the, the original hansen brothers the carlson brothers but uh, to my knowledge, there is no photo that exists of all three of them in a Fighting Saints jersey. So it would have been like a collage of photos, and it just didn't kind of appear right to me. So we, we decided we, we needed to have the logo on the cover because the logo is one of the greatest logos in all of sports. Um, the other debate was having the, the unique clear boards from the Civic Center on the cover because that's one thing that people really appreciated about the Civic Center. Um, but so that was another debate. So that's why if you look on the back cover, um, we put that that picture of the clear boards. Um, but to me, just Mike Walton's toothless grin there. Um, it just that's that's the one. I mean, I know some people wanted to see the three, the, the Carlson brothers on there. And there's plenty of photos of the Carlson brothers in the book. Um, but uh, that Mike Walton photo was the one that spoke to me. So I, I thought that was the one that needed to be.
1: All right. So a couple of things. Tell me about the brothers and, and maybe sort of the, 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 the side story of, uh, is it fair? I mean, were they truly the
2: inspiration for the movie? Um, Not them themselves, but the team, Um, the Carlson brothers, Jack, um, Jeff and Steve, they come from, came from Eveleth, Minnesota, Northern Minnesota. Um, Apparently they came to try out one of the fighting saints early um, like the fighting saints would hold open tryouts just to see if they could, you know, snag a few players that had been overlooked. Um, and at first, Glenn Samor didn't think that they were ready, so he told them they needed some minor league hockey experience. So they had traveled around and tried out with some different teams, and they ended up with the Marquette Iron Rangers, I think, that first season or second season that they, the, uh, they played. But um, then they came back, um, in the late or they came back for the 75 season. They eventually uh, started playing on the team. But in that meantime, um, they had played with the Johnstown jets. The Johnstown jets were the fighting saints kind of minor league affiliation. Glenn Sonmore had, I think his father is either his father-in-law or somebody he was related to was one of the team's general managers. Um, So he kind of affiliated with them. And a lot of the WHA teams affiliated uh, with uh, some of the teams in, in that uh, that league, um, that Eastern hockey league. Um, and, um, the Johnstown jets, um, as you probably know, most minor league teams during that time, um, the, the broad street bullies out of Philadelphia kind of had this, this model of, you know, being physical and tough and they set that blueprint. So all the NHL teams wanted their, and WHA teams wanted their minor league players to be tough and and they these players had to kind of fight their way um um up the ranks, so to speak to get noticed and show that they could handle that physical kind of play um and this johnstown jets team that first year they were the uh, fighting saints affiliate um they they racked up the penalty minutes and they won their league championship and um i mean all the stories you see in that movie um because uh um one of the players, Ned Dowd, was uh, uh, his sister, Nancy, is the one who's famous for writing the script. Well, one night while they're winning and celebrating, he apparently called her while they were all partying and said, you know, it sounds like our team is folding. She's like, how could you be folding if you're winning? And and, and she's like, who's, who's your team's owner? Have you talked to him? And he had no idea who owned the team. So she thought that was just the strangest thing in the world. So she start, came to Johnstown and started Following these guys around and recording their conversations and learning a lot about minor league hockey and, and learning these players like, you know, um, uh, Bruce Boudreau and, and the Carlson brothers and Dave Hansen and, and seeing all this wild craziness. And that's, that's where the stories all came from was this uh, minor league team in Johnstown.
1: Very interesting. So I guess the, the sort of the question sort of embedded in there. Did, did they essentially and we could talk about this, include the second version, which we'll get to as well. Did they sort of, um, I don't know, play up to this name, Fightin' Saints, or were they just as, you know, as goony and or wild and offensive minded as any other yes. WHA team?
2: Well, they made the playoffs. I mean, so they existed for five seasons and they uh, only played three complete seasons. The, they folded twice. You allude to the second incarnation of the team. But the three years that they made the, um, uh, made it through the entire season, they, they made the playoffs all three years. Um, the first year they got uh, eliminated um, by uh, Bobby Hall and the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, kind of an interesting little story there is that at the end of that first season, they had tied with the Edmonton Oilers. Or Alberta Oilers, I should say, they were the Alberta Oilers that season, and the WHA hadn't worked out any tiebreaker rules at the time, and the Fighting Saints just thought it would be like head-to-head record, and so they just assumed they were done, um, and apparently the WHA decided to have like a you know like the Major League Baseball has the game one sixty-three. They 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 decided to have one more game and let the the Oilers and the Fighting Saints play it out and and. Harry Neal had to go chase players down at the airport. They were already heading home and they had to come back and and they played the Oilers and play, won the play in game and and got to play the Jets the second season. Um, they uh, they had a lot more scoring punch because of the addition of Mike Walton. Um, but uh, they they ended up playing, I'm blanking right now. I think it was the, was it the Oilers again. I think they played the
1: Oilers. Correct, in the, the quarterfinals, the Oilers yep. and lost the yep. 70s to the, to the Arrows. So Houston
2: yep, Arrows. and then they went to the Arrows, and that Houston series is one of the most infamous series um, in all of WHA hockey. I have a whole chapter about it that I titled Keep Your Gun Belt Tight. Um, That's a a line uh, credited to uh, Bill Walton who said that on local radio here in in Minnesota. When you go to Houston, you got to, you know, keep your gun belt tight and um, just all kinds of craziness and brawls and fan fights. And, and just, it's infamous that season, but they did get eliminated by the arrows um, um, (laughs) on a, on a, what do I say? it? A controversial goal at the end. Um, Lefty likes to tell this story because it happened to him. Um, he, he thought he had covered the puck and thought the ref, um, didn't blow the whistle quick enough and it got somebody swatted at it and it went in and that turned out to be the series ending goal. Well, lefty went to plead his case with the referee and ended up tackling him and he didn't like realize it. Like one of the other players had to come up to him and say lefty. You're on top of the referee. You got to get up. This this doesn't look good. He kind of realized where he was uh, and got up, and he ended up getting suspended the next season for it. And and uh, he said he called the re- the referee um, later that summer to apologize, but told him he was still wrong about the call. Uh, um, and then you know the the, the third season is another uh, one where they 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 had, they advanced a couple rounds. They ended up playing the Whalers uh in a crazy series uh again with lots more um brawls uh, Jack Carlson versus Nick Fatiu, and and not only a brawls uh among teams or in between teams there was a famous incident where Gord Gallant machine gun Gallant had uh stayed out a little bit late past curfew and um he uh he Harry Neal did a check in and had said have have Gallant call me when he gets in you know and and uh, Gallant wasn't real happy because he felt uh, some, there was a little bit of favoritism between uh, Harry Neal and some of the other players. And Gallant went to go talk to Harry Neal in, in the middle of the night. And he ended up getting into a fight with uh, Harry Neal uh, and the assistant coach, Jack McCartan. And Harry Neal ended up getting tossed out into the lobby of his hotel room into, in his underwear, locked out in the middle of the night. Um, and, uh, like he coached the next day the, I think it was game two of that, that Whalers series with like a black eye, he had his nose ligaments and his nose torn. And, and, um, I, that's one of the regrets I have in the book is not finding a photo of that. It was an AP photo. And I, I, I couldn't find a photo of Harry Neal's face the next day.
1: Well, I, I guess the, the, the question though, uh, it bears repeating, were they, were they worse at. You know at mixing it up than any other team and and their their name just sort of hinted at it or or were they just kind of was it typical uh, from what you could tell of, of w h a play fast and maybe a little loose sometimes with with the action, including with the fists
2: I think so and i I think the fighting saints were one of the 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 tougher teams around i mean lefty lefty likes to say he <laughs> the broad, street if they played the broad street bullies, you know they made they may beat us in the score, but we'd have beaten them in the fights. Uh, and he he kind of says that proudly, um, but yeah, I mean the the whole league was just a little bit more wilder that way in terms of fighting and and you know yeah.
1: Well, tell tell me about so let's back up now. T- tell me about the okay, arena and, and and some of the the uh, some of the the great pictures in this book, which really show which I think is fascinating. Very very few arenas over the years, have um, uh, utilized a, a dash, dasher board setup. I, I can think of maybe the Rosemont Horizon in more modern terms back before it became the Allstate Arena here in the metropolitan Chicago area that had plexiglass clear uh, dashboards, right? Where literally you could see, yeah. um, it's a fascinating look, right? Um, uh, and it's a little jarring because you're so used to seeing you know, all white and stuff. And I'm assuming that is by and large, because the puck, at least historically, not the first year of the WHA, of course, when they tried and experimented with orange pucks, but pucks are. Blue too. They
2: had blue pucks
1: too. uh, Blue pucks too. Right. But, but, but black, right. So it's an easier contrast with the white of the, uh, of the ice, but also the white as it's, uh, you know, lifting off the ice against the boards and stuff. Um, Is there anything to, so what's the, what's the, why the why the clear plexiglass uh, instead of dasher boards was it just a design thing to be different
2: or was it out of necessity because of the seating arrangement or what they wanted they from what i understand they wanted the people in like the lower seats to be able to see the puck when it went into the corner or went up against the boards and it was just a visual thing from what i understand i i mean yeah they wanted to be a little bit different and make the 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 civic center more unique as opposed to what you know the People kind of make, I mean, I love the Met Center. I spent a lot of time there as a kid. But sometimes people look at the Met Center and think of it like a barn. You know, they do. They say that. Um, but I love the Met Center. Every, anybody listen to this, don't 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 email me about that. But that's they wanted the Civic Center to be a little bit more unique, and I, I think it was just more of a visual thing. The photos themselves. This is kind of a fun little part of this too. I, I'd already mentioned I got to meet Mike Lamy, the former PR guy. He was sitting on a treasure trove of all the team's original PR photos. We're not even done going through them yet. I mean, over 3000 of the team's original full fo- photos of Goldthorpe, the Carlson brothers, all, all these players from the seventies. And uh, just, I mean, it, I was like a kid in a candy store. So, um, I mean, I think I have like 74 photos in there right now. And, you know, it, it was, it was really hard to kind of, you know, 70s photography, you know, and trying to get them to pop in the book and on those pages. Um, so I really obsessed over the colors on them and how dark they were. And um, but yeah, I was just it was, I, I, I had to like, eliminate some photos, you know, it's like, this is a good photo, this is a good photo, and you're worrying about page count and all these things. Um, so yeah, but it, just so many really, really fun photos. Well, you've got a couple
1: of great pictures on, uh, I think it's page 49 from the uh, 1974 WHA all-star game. And there's a great color oh, sure. where you can see the ref and the sort of the, uh, the zebra red, white uh, striped thing. And, and um, there's also a uh, one who's wearing a black one too. I don't know why the referees were different colors. Yeah, and there,
2: that's one of the ones I had to cut. Cause there was another one where they were um, all lined up for the national anthem. And it was, that was kind of a cool one too. So there was, there was, you just, you know, you're like, God, oh, this is a good photo too. You could have, you could have a whole photo book of, of the WHA, you know, maybe if we do another version, we can add some more, but. Uh,
1: well, I, it, it's, it's interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a passing uh, hockey fan, right. And I have enough uh, experience and, and, interest in it, but not sort of die hard. but I, it just, it, I'm really, it's curious to me why more teams in history and maybe even now don't even consider go. And I'm sure from, from the, you know, the advertising boards and that kind of stuff. But, but from an in-arena in experience, why the uh, clear plexiglass isn't used more often because it truly look, makes everybody, you know, more I- into the game because they can see literally everything without having to worry about not seeing something.
2: Well, that's the reason they eventually, because so after the Fighting Saints left, you know, the hockey arena was used mostly for, for high school, hockey tournaments and things like that and concerts. Um, but eventually, a minor league team, the Minnesota Moose, kind of took residence in there, and that they were—I hate to kind of accuse them here—but they were the ones that got rid of the clear boards, and it was because of advertising. They needed to put advertising on, so it was, it all came down to the mighty dollar. Was the death of the clear dasher boards?
1: Well, I mean, the fact that the uh, the league gave or brought the uh, All Star Game to to Minnesota so quickly—it probably is evidence that uh, Minnesota. Uh, by contrast to some of the other teams in the league uh, was doing pretty well and, and maybe was essentially being rewarded uh, so early in the, uh, the league's existence with that all-star game.
2: Well, I don't, I guess I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm, I'm trying to think how many other of the WHA arenas were like new arenas or were they playing in um, already previously existing arenas? You know, like I'm thinking that Sandy, San Diego arena with the, with the, the chain link fence. They didn't even have glass, you know, plexiglass, they had chain link fence. So I'm just kind of wondering if maybe the reason was not only because, you know, Minnesota, one of the original franchises, but also um, just because it was a new brand new arena because it had opened halfway through the fighting saints first season.
1: Yeah. I think uh, maybe market square arena uh, in Indy uh, because of both the, um, uh, uh, the, the ABA with the Pacers and the racers. That might have been one um, yeah, I'd have to struggle, certainly not Chicago.
0: yeah uh, nope,
1: nope. Um, and
2: I think the Crusaders I don't think they might have had a new one. was it the rich rich richfield Coliseum? The
1: Coliseum after a while yeah but
2: but I, I guess in terms
1: of showcase, right um, but it's right. also interesting too, uh, I think uh, both in your writing and, and some other uh, research that I did, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the first ever broadcast national televised game of the wha was a game at the in saint paul on cbs with dick stockton of
2: all people it was and the fighting saints lost i think it was the winnipeg jets they played and it was like um you know one of the few games that the fighting saints actually had that's kind of another thing that kind of killed the fighting saints was a tv contract they really didn't have one i mean they had a radio presence but you know the north stars had a tv contract so i mean that helped them out a little bit more in terms of the pocketbook. Um, but the fighting saints had a contract with a local station to broadcast like 11 games per year. And like a couple times where they, it just can't, they canceled it because of technical difficulties and then the times that they were on TV, they, they lost, they called it their TV jinx. Um, so, uh, that lack of TV exposure really hurt the team as well. Yeah. The
1: January 7th, 1973, um, and boy, to be able to find a copy of that game, does such a yeah. thing exist? Did you try to find out? Does anybody think they might know? Possibly? You know,
2: I've contacted some of our local TV stations and, you know, even about old North stars footage. How do I get my hands on that? They all think it's gone. It, sadly. I mean, I mean, you'd have reels and reels of reels of these things. I They they bailed them out years ago.
1: Or, or any of the local broadcasts where any of those. No, that's like the ones I'm looking
2: stars. for is the local ones. You know, I see. Yeah. I mean, and they're gone. They just threw them out, you know, and it's like,
1: well, tell me uh, the, 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 the crowd, the atmosphere. I mean, did they, uh, were were they, um, uh, it seems like they were pretty well attended. They were, I think higher than average. They were one of the uh, highest, highest in the league. And and to, to why, to what, I mean, they obviously did pretty well. I mean, they were always above 500 and they were, they were playoff caliber
2: just about every year of their existence. Well, I mean, the crowds, um, I think I found a quote somewhere that said, you know, the North Stars were, and we kind of briefly mentioned it earlier, the North Stars, uh, they were dressed up for date night, whereas the, the Saints fans were wearing what they called Sears best. They were, you know, a little bit more blue collar. They were very much more, whereas, you know, Ren Blair, the old North Stars coach and general manager had to like, turn around and tell the fans, Hey, you need to boo them right now. Um, The saints fans didn't have, you know, they didn't need to be coached. They were very, very vocal, very, uh, very involved in the game. Um, So it was a very, very different crowd than uh, at uh, uh, the Met center. But yeah, I mean, even though the fighting saints attendance didn't like, they needed to make 11,000 every year to stay afloat financially. And I think like the first year they averaged 6,000, the second year, it was like 8,000. And they never really reached that goal of an average of 11,000. I mean, they had a few games here and there where they kind of blew the roof off the place. Um, But even, even though they were one of the the most uh, um, highly attended uh, arenas in the league, you know, the league kind of just let them, die off you know
1: well why the high attendance number as their benchmark what do they have a a larger than than normal uh budget i lord knows the wha was not very uh centralized in their approach to what a good budget should be it's very franchise oriented and people could spend and and clearly there was there was overspending to get some top talented players and stuff I, i suspect the the fighting saints had more of their fair share more than their fair share of uh pricey players but i did that did that aid and abet their uh inability to kind of cover their costs with 11,000 people
2: and i think i think so um i mean there there was a you know you talk to any player from the fighting saints they'll tell you the line of we had to go cash our checks before mike walton did otherwise ours would bounce because walton was the big money player so they all they all had to try to get to the to the bank before uh he did um you know uh, when when Wayne belial took over the team too, it seemed he um, he had a little bit of a shell game going. Like he would he to to get the the loans from the banks, he would have to show the receipts. Well, he was showing the receipts to multiple banks, and and eventually though, it just you know you're looking at this live golf right now. You know we where they're throwing money around to all these players, and and it's it was it was very similar and but that's just it's gonna come crashing down at some point I, I don't live golf well I mean the with the Saudis backing them I'm they'll probably have enough money but with the fighting with the WHA just it was a shell game they were throwing so much money around at all these players it wasn't it just wasn't sustainable it was gonna it was a house cards you know all right well you you mentioned Walton
1: tell me tell me about his story Mike Walton because um, he's clearly I guess he was the first sort of big signing for the fighting saints and, and immediately uh, became a force in, in the WHA because he kind of just racked up the goals.
2: Yeah. That first season, the fighting saints kind of lacked scoring punch, you know, Um, they didn't have any, they were kind of, I think, 11th out of 12th in scoring in the league. So uh, that second season, they went, they went after Walton and they signed him and his brother, Rob um, and Walton, um, they called him shaky. Um, uh, some attribute it to his father having the same nickname who used to apparently would give like a head fake when he would try to make a move and go around somebody. But most people refer to it as uh, Walton being kind of, he was, how do I put it politely? Like he was there some nights and not others. Like he, but apparently, you know, according to the coaches, he could, when he, when he was there and the switch was on, nobody could stop it, you know? Um, And he, he's, he, he had a lot of erratic behavior. There's stories of him um, jumping into a pool with his hockey equipment on and almost drowning. Um, there's stories of him getting into fights with players on our own team. Um, he, he, I mean, he was, he was everything the WHA represented in terms of hockey and just wild, you know, just crazy uh, erratic behavior and chaos. Um, um And that first first season he played with the Fighting Saints, he actually led the league in scoring. He had, what was it, 111 points, if I remember it, 60 60 goals and 50-some assists. Um, And he actually outscored Gordie Howe that year. Um, And even though Gordie Howe was given the MVP and the trophy, the MVP trophy was named after him, that season Mike Walton actually outscored him. And obviously it was given to Gordie probably because they – were the ones to knock us out of the the playoffs that year, um, and I think they went on to win the Avco Cup that year too. But uh, um, just kind of interesting that Walton had outscored him that year and and was the uh, league's leading scorer.
1: Yeah, also also interesting that uh, he played for Team Canada in the uh, second of the Summit Series in 1974, um, which of course 72 the uh, sort of a breakthrough one where the Canadians. Uh, beat the then Soviet Union uh, team in the classic and epic series that no WHA players were allowed to play to represent Canada. That was nice right. thing you wonder if he had uh, been part of that team prior, if that would have been made even more of a difference for Canada's side, but you know, that's, that's armchair quarterbacking, I guess. Right, right, right. So um, give me a sense now of how, uh, so it sounds like the, the, they're competitive, right? The team on the ice, uh, in the market, um, uh, I, and I'm I'm sure if you're a pro hockey fan in the Minneapolis-St. Paul Twin Cities metropolitan area, you're loving life because you've got two of you know the top teams in what is now just a, a you know a plethora of uh, of hockey franchises. Now we we've talked about sort of the NHL expansion in those years and the Kansas city scouts and the Washington scouts, capitals yeah, and, the capitals. you know, the, 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 thinning of the ranks already. I was like, you know, they were trying to catch up for all those years of lost expansion and then voila, the WHA shows up all of a sudden, you've got more teams than perhaps the talent pool can stock across North America.
2: Well, and don't forget too, we had the, we had the Gophers who were winning college championships here. So, and, you know, maybe not not nationally as popular, but in Minnesota here, the Gopher hockey team was also, so they were not only competing with the North stars, they were competing with the Gophers as well.
1: So give me a sense then um, of how the wheels start to fall off of this thing. Um, Because it's, it seems by all accounts by WHA standards, which is arguably not saying much (laughs) um, team is doing pretty well. But I guess the reality caught up with them pretty quickly—not
2: not a few seasons into the into their their journey. Yeah, I mean, it just all came down to attendance. I mean, if you're not, you know, I had somebody tell me once, hockey's a butts and seats business, and if you don't if you don't have butts and seats, you're you're not you're not going to stay afloat, you know. And and it just really is well, all it came down to. And and like I said, you know, with Wayne Belial trying to, you know, kind of run that shell game a little bit, it was, it was just bound to collapse, you know?
1: Well, yeah. And I think it's also important to remember for, you know, people who are a generation or two uh, behind us here on this is that, or in front of us here is that, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, historically hockey has been very much of a... Uh, An attendance-driven. Now, obviously, things have changed in the last number of years with television and media rights and, and all the ancillary, ancillary revenue streams, right? But back then, you know, hockey didn't have the um, the national television uh, presence, shall we say, right. part of that because of the NHL taking so long to recognize that there was this thing called the West Coast or yeah. places outside the Northeast and the Midwest, right? Um, it didn't help their case for television markets, right? And that was, you know, most of the other leagues by that point had kind of figured that out and at least had, had broken ground on, you know, another revenue stream beyond just what's the attendance today.
2: Well, and two, you know, you, you talk about the TV stuff, but also, you know, a lot of the times the North stars or the, the fighting saints were playing, they had scheduled a lot of games on the same nights as the North stars or the nights, the North stars were away and there was a TV thing. So they just kind of poorly planned that out and didn't think that through um, to kind of maximize their attendance and, and their profits. Um, so, I mean, just a, again, going back to that competition and, and lack of TV presence themselves um, just kind of all accumulated and, and, and eventually took them down.
1: Well, they went down though. And I, I this is a, I guess is a fairly common occurrence, but um, 1976, 1977 season, Yep, and you kind of. I'm sorry. The um, yeah, seven. Well, seventy six. Yep. Give me a sense of like how this team comes to an end. There's both the sort of like the buildup, right, which we're kind of hinting at, but maybe also the the specifics of of how and when it happened because it it seemed to like look it took a lot of people by surprise. Although in retrospect, it probably shouldn't have. And I'm talking right. the, first, the first
2: version. The first version. So there were kind of signs of it. The, the summer before the season even started, like I think Belial had said that, you know, his uh, he'd bought out the rest of the investors. I um, mean, he, you know, his group was now the only, he was in charge, solely in charge or weren't, you know, he would bought everybody out, which uh, and, and everything was fine and they had caught up on their payments and things like that. And he was trying to paint a rosier picture than it actually was. Um, and he, he kind of told people, he said, if you're here, we miss a payment. It's not true. Well, it, 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 it was. And, um, even the, some of the players agents were getting wind of, of play, like they had signed Henry Boucher, um, from the North stars heading into that season. And Boucher was promised a bunch of money and he never, he, well, he never got it, but he hadn't gotten it. Um, so some of the agents from um, these players, from uh, Walton and, uh, and uh, Henry Boucher, started reaching out to the North Stars, looking to see, first of all, Boucher, they were seeing who owned his NHL rights to try to get him, you know, o- over to playing with the NHL. And the North Stars eventually traded his rights to the scouts. Um, but Walton's agent had, you know, was inquiring about, you know, tr- you know, jumping ship and going back to the NHL, um, and it came down to uh, New Year's Eve. They, they missed their first payroll. And this is, this is uh, New Year's Eve 1975. 1975, yes, heading into 76. Um, they, they, the players held a meeting and they decided they were going to keep playing. Um, without pay because there were lots of promises made and things were going to happen and it would all be fixed and we were going to get a loan from the the teamsters which is one of my favorite parts of the story
1: okay wait a minute let's stop right there what (laughs) what
2: so they thought they were going to get a loan from the teamsters um and and i mean if you watch as much movies as i do and mafia type stuff you know the teamsters and and Like, so they were, they were looking into being owned by the Teamsters and um, the Teamsters local president uh, made like a quote in the paper that said, um, you know, the Teamsters get enough crap for taking on blue chip businesses, (laughs) we're not going to take on, you know, financial losers And, and so they, they thought they, they had, they had all these Promises being made to them—that was just one of the funnier ones. And
1: um, well, security wouldn't have been a problem, that's for sure. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I just I find that part of the story hilarious. The guy's name was uh, Marzatelli or Tony Felicetta. What I mean, not to be stereotypical, there—that was the that was the Teamsters president name. Sounds um, right
1: out. It sends right out of Central Casting.
2: Right, know. right, exactly. Um, but uh, the players, you know, were made promises, and they decided to keep playing um and they did and here the one of the beautiest parts of the story is they they were winning and they were playing while i mean while the walls were re- literally crashing around them they were winning and they were you know uh um fighting it out at the uh, top of the the western conference and then you know there was other teams folding around them so they had to um add more games and add more um, travel budget away games, which further just kind of pile, you know, piling on. Um, and it got into, uh, um, there was a uh, I can't remember where it was at, but there was oh, maybe, maybe it was in Cincinnati where they, they had told the media that if they weren't paid by that day, they weren't, they weren't going to play. And Harry Neal, um, decided to play a little trick on the fans and, uh, kept the team in the locker room for warmups. And the, uh, the refs came in and like, are you guys going to come out? And Harry's like, Hey, we got mortgages to worry about here. We, you know, we're not, uh, we're not, we're, you know, so everybody thought they weren't going to, but they did eventually come out and play that game. But they told him if we don't get a check, we're not getting on, on the plane, uh, to this, go to this trip out West. And, uh, Wayne Belisle, uh, found a way to get them a check. I mean, it wasn't the one they missed from, uh, uh, December, uh, New Year's Eve, but, uh, they did get a check. They got on the plane, they headed out West. Um, they came back home and it was, I think, February 28th. They were playing the Mariners at home. I think it was the Mariners. Yes, correct. Um, they, they like a couple of the big players agents told him just don't show up they're, they're, Don't go um, like Mike Walton didn't show um, John Garrett. I have a photo of in the book of John Garrett loading up his car. At the Civic Center, Um, Paul Holmgren was told not to go. Um, They had to um, um, call up some, you know, Johnstown players. Assistant coach Jack McCartan had to suit up (laughs) and and be the the, the backup goalie that night. Um, And then the next day, they were scheduled to get on a plane to head to Cincinnati. And um, they they showed up at the airport, and it sounds like there was only a handful of players there. And uh, uh, Glenn Sodmore and <laughs> Wayne Belisle uh, got some money at the last minute from a, 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 a investor, <laughs> another mysterious investor. And were are like stuffing bags of, of cash for the players for their per diem and stuff and trying to fill them up. And they got to the airport and then, you know, the eight or nine players that were there pretty much said, you know what, we're done. And they folded the team.
1: How did, how did they... I mean, how do they do that sort of hand to mouth for two months, right? Literally maybe getting one check along the way and all the uncertainties and stuff. I mean, were
2: Well, the it sounded like they didn't... got a couple checks in there. It was the one that was missed on new year's Eve. They never got back.
1: Yeah. But were they delusional, the players, or were they, they, they loyal and enjoying the process of winning and being competitive to a fault or like I, it, you know, I, um, you gotta, you gotta pay the rent and feed and, you know, feed the kids, right? I mean, right. two months without th- really getting paid.
2: Honestly, I think for a lot of them, you got to remember the, the, these WHA guys, other than the, you know, the three, four big name guys, I think, you know, they wanted to play. They, they wouldn't maybe not have those opportunities in the NHL. You know, that's one of the legacies of the WHA is that it created more opportunities for these guys. And, you know, may, I, I guess I can't speak for what they were thinking, but in my mind, I mean, do I want to go work in, in a, you know, in a construction site, or do I want to keep playing hockey, you know, and maybe get noticed and maybe, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but for me, you know, as a, you know, somebody who's played sports in my lifetime, I, I, you know, I want to play.
1: Yeah. And uh, they were, they, and the, um, uh, the interesting and convoluted sojourn of the Denver Spurs slash Ottawa Civics.
2: Yeah. That was maybe the one you- I was talking about that collapsed. Like yeah. when they- and they got added games. That's, that was the one I was referring to.
1: So those two teams didn't make it, but have a pretty good uh, sense of sort of like how, um, you know, you're, <clears throat> you're only as strong as your weakest link um, in the WHAR All right, before we sort of get to the, uh, the end of that chapter and then the bizarre, maybe uh, reincarnation second chapter, how much uh, from what you could tell, and if you're doing this chronologically and, and doing some digging, how much did the fan base and the local media and maybe even the national hockey media know and/or question or worry about the health of the of the fighting saints, or was it kind of a surprise and a shock on New Year's Day and and the, New Year's Eve and the, and that two months later thing but was were, were people in on the fact that things were going sideways before then?
2: Yeah, I don't I don't think it was a surprise. I think I mean I think even from the beginning people were questioning having two major pro hockey teams in the same city. And, and I mean, even after the first season, there were rumors of the team moving to Detroit or rumors of the team moving out West to the Pacific Northwest. And I mean, it seemed like every day there was rumors that there would be a new buyer or there would be, we've got another offer here. We're going to go there. And um, uh, that's why I keep referring to it as a shell game. It was just every day there was some new rumor. I, I don't think, the collapse was a surprise to anyone.
1: <laughs> okay, well, then the team goes away midseason, bitter taste in everybody's mouth. Okay, so tell me what happens next, because one in this historical story wakes up and all of a sudden sees the Minnesota Fighting Saints back in the league the next season. Tell us what that is and, and, and how that comes about. Because you just described a situation, frankly, that would seem to question why they would want to
2: try that all over again. Right. Well, so this goes back to our conversation about the California Golden Seals. So at that uh, or actually before that time, the Seals had been owned by the NHL. The NHL was trying to keep them afloat um, and um, kind of didn't, didn't want to be losing franchises when they were facing competition from the WHA and um i think the guy's name was melvin swig he bought the seals um and a couple of his partners um were the gun brothers i mean we'll get to them in a second here but um he bought the team and he had planned to build this um this it was called the yerba buena center it was going to be like a convention center with an arena attached and he wanted to own the arena you know and and which again, is one of the things that kills most teams is that they have to pay rent you know, at an arena, uh, especially for the North Stars who built their own and then had to pay rent. And anyways, kind of getting off tangent there, but um, he wanted to build this Yerba Buena Center. And um, he had originally had been told he could go ahead with it. Well, there was a, um, a mayoral election in San Francisco, uh, the famous Mayor Moscone. Um, uh, and uh, he had promised that if he got elected, he would, uh, had a blue ribbon committee to look at the plans and kind of, you know, look at him a little closer. And he did get elected and he did kind of hold off and, and tell uh, Swig he couldn't build his Yerba Buena Center. And um, eventually Swig kind of got mad and, and the NHL gave him permission to move. Well, because his partners were the Gun brothers who were from Cleveland, um, they had, t- well, they actually looked in Denver first. I think they were going to move there, but then um, the Gunn brothers um, persuaded Swig to take a look at Cleveland. Um, so they moved to Cleveland and became the Cleveland Barons. Well, um, at that point, kind of at that exact same time, um, the Nick Maletti, the owner of the Cleveland uh, Cavaliers, the, or I'm sorry, the Crusaders, too many Cleveland teams here. Um, the Crusaders, which was the WHA team, um, they had been having financial difficulties as well. And they were looking into moving to Florida. They like, they had uh, a logo design. They were going to be the Florida breakers. Um, and they were going to, they were, and, and they had already hired ironically, Glenn Sonmore as their GM who had been kind of recruiting some of the old fighting saints players. Well, somewhere along the line, um, the Florida deal um, fell through and Miletti didn't want to stay in Cleveland anymore because the Barons, the NHL was going to be there and they didn't want to face that competition. So they began looking elsewhere to move. And lo and behold, uh, they were recruited by um, sounds like Wayne Belial and the, uh, the mayor of uh, St. Paul uh, to come and take a look here. And, and so they, they decided after, well, I should say this too. There were part of the negotiations were that Miletti wanted uh, guaranteed um, season tickets sold from the local chamber of commerce, and and one of my things in research in my research that I struggled to find was the actual number. Like one says it was 4, 000, one says it was two thousand, one you know one says it was five thousand, um, but the agreed upon number uh, seems like neither side um, agreed on the agreed upon number. Like no, we said we'd we'd only buy this many. Well, no, you said you'd buy this many. And that became uh, a sticking point later on. But, um, but yeah, they uh, decided to move to St. Paul and they became, they called themselves the new fighting saints. Um, They got uh, the same logo, but the jerseys instead of blue and yellow were now red and yellow and Glenn Sonmore. Once they came here, he started putting the, the the team back together. He literally um, he brought back in. I mean, other than Walton and, 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 uh, um, Henry Boucher and 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 Paul Holmgren. He literally put the rest rest of the same team back together um, uh, through trades and and interleague drafts and, and just got the Carlson brothers back, Dave Hansen back, Gord Gallant back, and and uh, Lefty Curran back. And and so he he I, I titled the chapter "Putting the Band Back Together" because it reminded me of the uh, the uh, Blues Brothers movie, just getting everybody back together.
1: So, okay. So how does that go then? Um, I mean, I know how it goes, but, but the right. audience, how that goes, because, okay. So um, I guess if I'm not mistaken, this now by night, by this year is now the only market left that has uh, a team in both leagues. Yeah. Competing against each other.
2: Yep. Yeah. And that's again, one of the, I think one of the reasons that the WHA let them die, but, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't go well. Part of the reason is that the old Fighting Saints team has still had some debts with banks. And those banks tried to go after the new Fighting Saints and tried to recoup some of those funds. Um, I already kind of alluded to that, uh, the the ticket guarantee, uh, which was uh, uh, clearly not agreed upon in any writing somewhere. Um, but uh, that was a big sticking point, And Um, And they faced the same attendance issues. I mean, it was, it was the exact same situation all over again.
1: Now uh, historically, right. Is, is this uh, um, what we call sort of a retcon situation, a a, a retro uh, continuation kind of thing, or uh, I mean, you know, some might argue that, right. So, I mean, we're really splitting hairs here when we're talking about one or two teams in a league that hasn't existed for, you know, almost 50 years, uh, you know, where does that history lie? Right. But um, you know, in many cases that um, you could say that these were two separate franchises and, and on, on many uh, planes of thought uh, they were right, but yet they were embracing the same name and and for all intents and purposes, largely the same logo and trying to literally continue, albeit a, a new franchise, but in the same place, Same, you know, uh, uniform kind of construct, the same, you know, the name, uh, you know, um, so I the the curiosity there. So I'm just bringing this up years after the fact. How do you think the fans and the the press and the media feel about it there? Because, you know, they kind of were just they had the rug pulled out of them from them, you know, last year. Right. And now all of a sudden they have to be sort of they have to suspend disbelief and buy in for a new quote unquote scenario this year.
2: Well, like I said, I wasn't a back then, so I don't know how people took it then. I think now most people consider them the same franchise, even though they weren't. Like, you know, fans like to collect both jerseys, and here's my red version of this. And, you know, um, I know the guy, one of the people I work with um, from vintage Minnesota hockey, you know, we he we, we view them as the same franchise. I mean, it, it was really same player, same place, um, other than a few it, I mean f- I I find it weird that when I have to go to hockey reference and look up that second incarnation they're under the Cleveland Crusaders you know it just that seems odd to me but but again I wasn't born back then so maybe I don't know I guess I don't know how people would have taken it back then you know Yeah
1: and I and it's it's easy to say you know people don't care and then maybe they don't I do though cuz it's it's you know these are these are these are these were real teams with real people and real fans paying real money for real entertainment and and games right and um at the time they were real um and I guess it's convenient because the league is dead, and and it was such you know the second version was such a short period of time they played four years as the Cleveland Crusaders, so sure it seems like right. that's where they should live, but um, it's just a curiosity to me right now. It's it's, right. it's a lot more interesting and frankly important when the teams still live on, right? So the North Stars becoming the Dallas Stars, right? You know we've had a very A hot debate on a number of different uh, in a number of different (laughs) conversations about where the history of the Minnesota North Star should live is it is it in many you know some say the stars some say it's it's in in San Jose
2: right I think Uh, I think you know where I'm gonna go with that well no I I don't I mean you know yeah I don't uh, I our banners should be here they should the North Stars banner should be here or with the Wild right here I know I know you know I've interviewed Lou Nanny. he thinks our team wild should be named the north stars um um i just i i bill masterton's it should be here in minnesota at, at the XL. it shouldn't be down in dallas yeah
1: and 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 there's there's a lot to be said for that right but the, you know continuation clearly i'm biased but, well no i but it, it's <laughs> but i you know i and i and i um yeah, and I, I don't want to sort of digress here from this story, but okay, so let, let me just no, that's fine. inconveniently that's ask good. this question then. So wh- where then do you think this cul-de-sac of history of the Minnesota Fighting Saints, both teams, right? If they're if we're going to consider them, we're going to squint really hard and consider them sort of one Sure. experience in history, um, which is fine. W- where does that history live? Uh, and or has there been any... Uh, recognition admission by anybody in the minors or the wild now in, in the NHL of this franchise?
2: Well, I think the wild has had a few of the players back. You know, that the beginning of the games, they have a, the let's play hockey. I don't know if you know how much you know about the Minnesota wild. We, we used to have the show called let's play hockey and, and they, the tagline was let's play hockey. So when the wild started they before every game, they have some, you know, local celebrity famous person come and do the, the let's play hockey before the game. And they've had quite a few of the the fighting saints players come back and do that. Although I don't know that they've um, I, I know in the early nineties, there was uh, you know, there's been reunions. The, the, the St. Saint Paul saints baseball team has had, they've had some fighting saints nights um, they've where they've had the Hanson brothers come and, you know, do their bit and all the players come back for a reunion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've actually kind of been trying to reach out to the wild because I mean, they, the XL energy center is built on the grave of the civic center. Um, the wild's offices are the same exact offices where the fighting saints offices were and where Bobby Hull signed his famous contract. Um, um, and I wish the wild would possibly hopefully recognize them this year on the 50th anniversary, especially with, like I you know said about those, all those Minnesotans in that first season that kind of were pioneering that league to get it off the ground. Um, I would really, I mean, I'm not saying the wild haven't do, done anything, so don't like take it that way, but I really, I really, I don't care if I make money on this book. What I want is that these guys get some recognition and, and you know, we've got a, like Steve Carlson is fighting cancer right now. I've heard Gord Gallant is battling cancer. Wayne Belial is, we think he's in hospice. Like the family asked us not to kind of, reach out to him and kind of give them their space right now. So, I mean, you got these players. um, It's the 50th anniversary of the team. You're literally playing on their grave uh, of the team. Um, I I hope the wild will do something to honor them this year for the 50th anniversary.
1: Um, Give me some other names that people might remember uh, either from their, what happened to them afterwards or, or just in the, the annals of saints history. Uh, Some of the names you've mentioned, but, uh, Mike Antonovich. Sure, we mentioned slapshot shot uh with o, 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 Ogle, Oglethorpe played. Uh, well I, that was
2: Goldthorpe. That was Bill Goldthorpe. Mike Goldthorpe, Antonovich. I meant, right, yeah, right. yeah, no, worries Mike Antonovich was a Minnesota boy from uh mispronounces Calumet, Minnesota. Um and uh, people really he played for the Gophers, he played for Sanmore. Um so people, you know, they wanted to see pictures of him in the book and so I had a few pictures of him in there. Um, you know, you got, uh, Bruce Boudreau, obviously, who was the wild coach for a while. Um, um, why am I blanking right now? Uh, Gary Gambucci was a Minnesota guy. Um, Fran Huck, um, Pat Westrom, another Minnesota guy. Um, I it was important to me to have Minnesota photos of the Minnesota guys in the book. Cause I feel like the book's going to appeal mostly to Minnesota people. I'm hoping it gets picked up. You know, because you got the 50th anniversary of the movie coming up, too. Um, but yeah, Bill Goldthorpe, of course, he was uh, famously uh, uh, depicted as Ogie Oglethorpe in the movie by Ned Dowd, by the way. The, uh, the, the Nancy Dowd's brother was uh, the actor who played Ogie. Um, apparently, Ogie was going to be in the film, but he uh, when he was getting interviewed or not. Well, I don't want to know if you call it an interview. He Paul Newman's brother was coming to visit and talk to him. And Goldthorpe allegedly had been thrown out of the game that he was in and he was really angry in the locker room and he threw a beer bottle against the wall or whatever he was drinking, some sort of bottle with fluid in it uh, against the wall and it splattered all over Paul Newman's uh, brother's coat on his way into the locker room. And suffice to say, uh, um, Goldthorpe didn't get another interview. Um, Now we mentioned lefty, uh, John Garrett, they called him uh, Cheech because he looked, like Cheech Marin, um, or they call them Chee as well. Um, yeah, that's
1: well, I mean, a cast of characters for sure. Um, for sure, and, um, uh, you know, I, and it's, I think it's, uh, awesome that, that you've gone to such great lengths and depths. W- what was there stuff in your pursuit of this story and trying to put this all together that, um, you wish you could have gotten whether it's a person who wasn't uh, reachable or was no longer with us, or uh, sort of a holy grail of, of either memorabilia or footage or anything that maybe still out there that you'd love to find, and maybe you know our audience or other audiences could perhaps help crowdsource for you or or, or pursue.
2: Well, you know, I had trouble. Uh, t- I think because you know I'm not a media person. I'm you can tell by my uh, not clearing of clearest of talking here i'm i'm not you're, the, you're
1: doing just fine
2: I'm not in the media i'm a seventh grade science teacher and i talk much better in front of seventh graders than i do on these things but i think um a lot of the players they were like who is this guy so they were they're kind of afraid to talk to me and 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 not like uh, i mean totally understandable they're like you know i they, you know i'm kind of a nobody to be honest with you and you know luckily i got lefty to talk to me and and uh you know, a couple of the PR guys and, and um, Steve Carlson would com- communicate with me a little bit on Twitter. And I got even got a little couple of quotes from Craig Hartsburg. But I mentioned that photo earlier of Harry Neal. I really wanted to get that in the book. The problem with trying to find AP photos from the 70s is they just don't exist. Like most of the photos, the black and white photos that I found, I found at our Historical Society here in Minnesota from the Star Tribune and Pioneer Press newspapers. But AP photos like that, I I don't know if they exist anymore or where you can find originals of them. There's also a famous photo of at one point Belial was trying to lure Bobby Orr away from the Bruins. And there's a famous photo, you can Google it right now and you can find it on the internet where Belial is sitting with Bobby Orr and they're talking contract. Um, But trying to get copyrights to it, I have, you know, I think it's in some Toronto library somewhere. I don't know how I would, you know, so that was one we wanted to try to find as well. Um, trying to think of others, and I would I would imagine too that that
1: you know <laughs> as this book gets is out there and sort of permeates and stuff that that you will that people will discover it and then perhaps you'll be corrected on a few things or maybe even oh, for sure augmented yep. with certain things. So so you're t- it sounds to me like you're taking a healthy approach that this is not necessarily although it's definitive for the first time really in in it's the team's history since it's uh, it, since it was there um, is maybe not necessarily the final word.
2: Right. Well, and I, you know, I, I, the thing with publishing on Amazon is if I find a mistake, I can just upload the new version and people will, it, cause they print on demand. So they, I don't like have books sitting in my garage and mailing them out. So if we find an error, we can correct it. You know, and I was also kind of thinking too, you know, maybe we do a second edition of this after we find some mistakes or or maybe we get a hold of one of those photos that we want or, you know, one of the other things that this is what I wanted to add. Um, one thing that i am kind of regret that I didn't put in the book was like a list of all the players who ever played, like in, in Lou Nanny's book about the North Stars, he has a section, uh, Bob Shower's book too, I should mention that. Um, they, they have, you know, a section called They Wore the Star, you know? and just to kind of honor every player who wore a jersey. And, you know, for me, it kind of came down to page count, you know, every, every, every page you put in there is it makes the book and we're already at 20 bucks. And that was because we wanted to have color photos in there. And I think that's a little bit high for a book of this size, the book of this size should probably be about 15 bucks, um, in my opinion, but the color photos kind of push it up there. So I was trying to, you know, cut costs. Um, So maybe we do in a future edition, we put You know, like they, they wore the, the little saint is what they called it. They they wore the saints Jersey, um, and list all the players in there. And, you know, also the statistics too. Somebody suggested putting, you know, each year's statistics in there, but sometimes when you do a little research on fighting saints statistics, you, some, it's not there sometimes, you know, so trying to find the accurate ones, I'd be afraid to put something in there just because I got it off hockey reference, you know, um, uh, I'd want to make sure I had accurate ones. Uh, But yeah, those are some other things I thought of uh, uh, that I kind of wanted to put in there, but didn't.
1: Well, no, this is great though. I mean, look, I, I, you know, I think this is um, uh, this is uh, one of the major reasons why we continue to do this show is we love uh, to find uh, stories about, you know, teams that have been forgotten or departed or, or vanished and seemingly in thin air and these these things happened. They were real, right? And they were real fans, and they're part of, in this case, uh, the history of professional hockey uh, in this country, and and certainly uh, very uh, 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 crucial or central to the pro game's life in in your neck of the woods, right? And and even though the team is gone, it still has some reverberations for perhaps why there's a team in Saint Paul now in the NHL, right? And and maybe where those histories kind of lie and, and yeah, things like slapshot and, and, and Oglethorpe. And I mean, these are, these are all little pieces of diaspora that, or the history of hockey in Cleveland and maybe why there's not a team in Cleveland now, right. Or Mm -hmm. perhaps why there is one in Columbus now, right. Um, Oddly has a connection to this story. And as we talked about, right. Dallas existing today and San Jose existing today and, And, and all that stuff, right? Um, where this history, it's actually part of it. If you just dig a, a level or two beneath the surface, uh, you'll find that the Fighting Saints are actually part of those stories, plural.
2: Well, you know, the WHA, we kind of mentioned it earlier, but they were, you know, their legacy is that they created opportunities for more players, specifically more American-born players, because there just weren't that many before um, the WHA was around. And they also, another thing that's a little known fact about, the WHA is they were successful in challenging that reserve clause Um, that first season when some of those players were the, the NHL was suing the WHA the WHA was successful through the courts of challenging their contracts the reserve clause where they you know were kind of forced to stay with the team even though their contract was up so that's kind of a unknown little or underrated legacy of the WHA as well.
1: Well, now, much interestingness there, for sure. The book, a must-get. Great pictures. You want to see what the uh, see-through dashboards look like during Minnesota Fighting Saints game. I mean, it's fascinating what that arena looked like in St. Paul. It's called A Slapshot in Time. The wild but true history of the Minnesota Fighting Saints. It is available in paperback and Kindle forms And, of course, you can find a convenient link to it and uh, Amazon's fulfillment from our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode number 273 with Dan Winnesota. And you will find uh, not only some great pictures and stuff, but a convenient link to said book. And uh, we will get a, a couple of shekels of referral love for your doing so. And we appreciate that. Dan will, too, believe it or not. You can follow Dan on social media, and I encourage you to do so. You can see them on Instagram or Facebook or on Twitter. They're all the same handle. It's at Wenisota. W-H-E-N-E-S-O-T-A. At Minnesota. You can also follow Dan's exploits for his still unveiling, still un- un- uh, unspooling, shall we say, uh, amateur documentary devoted to the story of the Minnesota North Stars. Yeah, remember them? We've talked about them on a couple of previous episodes. Uh, the Twitter handle for that is at M, as in Mary, North Star State. M North Star State. That's at M North Star State. Follow the movie exploits there. Uh, Dan also wants you to keep checking out, and he's a, a prolific contributor to the vintage MNHockey.com website. That's the vintage Minnesotahockey.com website. It's actually Vintage Mn hockey.com there you go lots and lots and lots of great stuff there great photos that kind of stuff um and um including the iconic uh photography around bobby hull uh uh, entering and uh, acknowledging the wha that occurred in saint paul as you heard dan talk about uh those pictures and many many more and stories all there at, at uh vintage mn hockey Dot com. All right. Our website, as uh, previously mentioned, is goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh You'll find all of our social media links there. We're uh, on uh, Facebook. You'll find us on Instagram at available and, of course, on Twitter, where we're probably the most active, at Good Seats Still. Uh Email address is hello at com. Please indeed say hello and keep it clean, will you? Uh, we have a little weekly email newsletter. Just search the website. You'll find it there. And, um, I think that's it. Jerry Payne, thank you, sir, for your kind work as always this week. And, uh, of course to all of our listeners, uh, we are just, uh, humbled and, uh, hugely appreciative of all your notes and your, uh, Uh, suggestions and commentary and all that stuff. Thanks for listening. We can't do this uh, without you, and uh, we encourage you to listen further. Rate and review us, will you, wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe to us, follow us, whatever you need to do, and tell your friends, by all means. Do that too. We appreciate that. All right, enough from me. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.